This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. You know what time it is, Larry? It is Coin 30. Welcome back to the newest episode of the Coin World Podcast. You know that I'm Jeff Stark, and joining me is lately... I know that's yeah that's uh, see that's it I'm working on I don't have a watch that says coin thirty I'm working on I'm looking at it you said it's coin thirty and I'm looking and it's not on my watch but I just got it for Christmas too darn it I'm Larry Jewett who needs a new watch and needs no introduction but we're going to do that anyway you know we're back with another episode of the Coin World podcast as we have been doing every week now for almost two years. Larry's been with us for about a month. We are delighted to be here again, as always. And I will say we're um, excited because this episode, we got to really take a walk in the uh, grassroots, as it were, and explore the hobby at the everyman level. And I think our interview with Joe Conti is a sort of instructive and illustrative look at how somebody can take the hobby and turn it into something much more than just a diversion. Well, I think it was very important, too, to uh, get a good understanding, and hopefully our listeners will have that understanding once they get a chance to uh, give a listen to what Joe had to say here later on in our podcast. And hopefully uh, you're subscribing to it and getting it on a regular basis and getting the proper notifications, which because my computer now decides to do a sound with notifications, I just turned them off. Hopefully you haven't turned them off, and hopefully we haven't turned you off from this as well. So I uh, well, really do appreciate off. the support. No, that's it exactly. Don't turn us off. Absolutely not. Uh, we promise that you're going to get something out of this, even if it's uh, the inclination to write a letter to us, which we got a couple of those, but we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. By the way, uh, we'd like to say that uh, our presentation here today is presented by our sponsor, and today's sponsor is the letter D. That's D. The letter D is our sponsor today, and you're going, Jeff's going, what are you talking about here? Why are we being sponsored by the letter D? Well, because that, I want to have a little because fun it's a with mint Jeff. Mark. It, well, okay, well, you're on the right track here. It's not a question so much as it's a word association game. Now, I picked the letter D because we mentioned Joe Conti. He is a dealer in training. Dealer starts with the letter D. So for the next minute or so, I'm going to have you reach into your brain, and I want you to tell me, and we're going to go back and forth on this, a numismatic-related term that begins with the letter D. I'll go first. Dealer. Your turn. Die. 
Okay, he has die, so I'm going to put an M on that. I'm going to say dime, D-I-M-E. Can I go with die break? Since that's very you can different do that. from a die. That's a term. <laughs> yes, it's very different, and it is a term. And I'm just going to go into your world right now. I'm going to say denarius. Very good. Well, how about Dansko, the company that makes albums that everybody loves to get, but they are, boy, are they tough to find, especially the 7070 typeset one. Well, I found a couple of them in my father-in-law's attic, by the way, over the weekend. So we're going to go back here. You said Mint Mark earlier, and uh, so I'm going to go with Denver, uh, the place where there's a Mint. So Denver's my D word. So uh, let's go to Denmark, where they issue the kroner-denominated coins. Is that is that that's a stretch? I think <laughs> that's getting there. But uh, it's, I, mean, it's, I, I mean, you you, you weren't you weren't warned about this, so you couldn't be prepared. So I'm going to go Delonica. How about that one? Oh, an, another mint term. You know, um, that reminds me of the uh, the great line in uh, Duck Soup. We were talking about Duck Soup before the show, where I think it was Groucho is asking Harpo if he wants to be mint director. And he says, no, 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 like a mint. What other flavor you got? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I, we're I going am, to have to just get a segment where we have classic movie quotes. No doubt about that. Uh, yeah, you I, you know, I'm going to give I, you one more chance here. I got, I got a couple in my mind on the letter D, but we're going to kind of wrap this up. There are a lot of them out there, and I'm sure I, hopefully our listeners have a little fun once we kick it off. So how about denomination? Because every person who goes to church goes to some denomination. Oh, wait, wrong, <laughs> wrong thing. Every coin has a denomination. And if it doesn't, well, there are some coins out there that don't have denominations. But how do you tell them? By their size and their weight. So that's a, a little something for down the road. But yes, every coin should have a denomination in listing. You know, it should show it, or at least in theory, it has a denomination that it's valid for. So that is probably the most all-encompassing D word for our little game. And I hope that we earned more than a D in this little exercise. One would hope, but I don't have much hope for that as well. Let me just go ahead, since you went ahead and cross-pollinated our podcast here, let me end this game by saying amen, okay? So we're done <laughs> with uh, our D game. Yeah, that was, yeah pick your, pick your uh, word of rejoicing, but this game is now over. So that was my little surprise that I had for you and uh, wanted to have a little bit of fun to get things kicked off here and hopefully our uh, listeners could take part in it as well because we actually feast off of the idea that uh, we may try to make it as interactive as we possibly can. We couldn't hear your answers, but you could challenge yourself on it or perhaps others around you in the hobby in a, a word association game like that. So don't be surprised if the letter, oh, I don't know, F. Franklin shows up in the near future. But, uh, you know, it's just the idea that this is something a little bit different. It's not going to be every time, but it is a fun little game, and it gave me a chance to uh, – put something over on you right there. Like I said, you didn't have the chance to prepare for this because I wasn't going to. And to be honest with you, I thought of it at 1230 this morning. So there you awesome. have it. But, uh, so speaking of D, I think we got a D grade or I got a D grade with the trivia question answer of the last episode because 
I was uh, sitting pretty. I thought, uh, proud of myself. I came up with this sort of timely topic, this question, uh, how many coins uh, show or related to the U.S. Capitol, not counting the Library of Congress, because that's different, but the U.S. Capitol building itself and the uh, iconic imagery found there. And I lied to you. I told everyone in the last episode that there were seven coins. And of course, I came up with that because there were two three-coin programs with a silver dollar, a gold $5, and a, a base metal half. Those were the um, 1989 Congress Bicentennial and the 1994 Capitol Bicentennial. I'm sorry, the and the 2001 U.S. Capitol Visitor Center. Then there was also the Capitol Bicentennial coin in 1994. But two sharp listeners contacted us to, to set me straight. And gosh, I uh, boy, do I have egg on my face. But, you know, we're right there with you. Can't know everything in the hobby, but we do love spending time exploring it. So what did I miss? Well, the one that I should have gotten, because even I can afford these cents, is the 2009 Lincoln cent that was issued with, uh, you know, there were four designs that year. And the last of the four designs marks his presidency and a an important event in his presidency notwithstanding the civil war was the construction of the capitol dome and you can see it right there on the reverse of the scent so wow tim ferrari i think ferrara uh sent me that note and i went go like homer simpson and that was actually the second note to call me onto the carpet. Dave Nelson, um, connected with him on Facebook, he sent me a message and he's like, hey, great episode as always, love listening, but uh, did you forget about dot, dot, dot? What did we forget about? What did I forget about? I'm not going to blame Larry on this. I own it because I should have been, it should have occurred to me, but you know, I'll be honest. I tell everybody I'm world coin guy. I'm not US coin guy. I didn't come up in that U.S. coin ranks, so I wasn't thinking. It wasn't apparent. Uh, sorry. You know, we had said the number was seven, and I told you those seven. Now we know it's eight. Well, it turns out there's a lot more designs out there than I had thought about, because what am I missing? Well, the traditional classic St. Gaudens gold $20 double eagle coin that was issued 1907 to 1933. You know, I'm going to blame the fact that I've never been able to afford one <laughs> on uh, on the reason I didn't get that. That's a cop out, I admit, but you know, give me cut me some slack. Uh, I make mistakes, I'll own them. So that was a big one, right? You know, that's like the iconic American coin design. Then when you get into the whole backstory of the 1933, I mean, you know, it, we could talk for hours just on that and some of the people involved in that storied legacy of, of a coin. But then you go, wait a minute, wasn't that design revived <laughs> a couple times? Well, and, and that's true. In 1986, you have the Gold American Eagle program. And lo and behold, there's four different denominations there. There's the 10th ounce, $5, the half ounce, uh, I'm sorry, the quarter, quarter ounce, uh, $25, I think it is, the half ounce, $50, and the one ounce, $100. So that's four design types, but that's been issued, you know, for 35 years this year, right? 86 to now is 35 years. So the big anniversary this year. So do you count every single year? I don't. I, I mean, I think as a design type, you can count it once for those four designs, but then let's jump forward a little bit more. 
What happened in 2009? Well, I was at the Mint Directors Conference in 2007 when then-director of the Mint, Ed Moy, said, we're going to have a neo-renaissance of American coin design. I don't think any honest observer would say that we achieved that. I think the intentions were there. Uh, you know, certainly Moy, as, as a student of the hobby and numismatics, wanted our designs to better reflect uh, the artistry that they had before. But, you know, there are certain uh, limitations, bureaucratic and otherwise, whether that's Congress, whether that's the design committees, whether that's technical, you know, we're, we're producing coinage at a volume much greater than 100 years ago, 113, 14 years ago. So, okay, you know, he tried, he did his best, whatever, but it did result in the 2009 ultra high relief gold coin. And that's another type that it carries that design, that classic design. So I was at seven and I quickly found out that, oh gosh, no, you need to add the Lincoln cent. That's eight. You need to add the four bullion coins. That's 12. You need to add the ultra high relief. That's 13. And I'll admit, you know, I may be forgetting something. You know, I don't think any of the first spouse coins, those show the White House. I don't think, you know, there really wasn't anything with the capital involved in those. But I could be forgetting something that you just, you know, it's like when I looked, I'm like, well, the D.C. quarter, that shows uh, Duke uh, Ellington, I think, or some, you know, you start looking for logical connections. And it just, like I say, egg on my face. I've never owned one of these gold coins Um well, I take that back. I have owned a couple of the proof versions, but that was just a, hey, you know, I got bonus money that year and I bought it and threw it in a safe. So, you know, it's on me. I might, maybe we need to take a hiatus on the questions till I get my act together. But we wanted to get that, you know, set the record straight right away. So you knew that, hey, don't go around asking your friends at the coin club that question. And I will say, I, I was at a shop and uh, I got to meet a gentleman, Ron Mueller, Mueller, I think Mueller, and uh, he listens to the podcast every week. He was like, I can't think of these, the answers to this. And I walked him through it. So Ron, if you're listening, I was wrong. There's more to it. And certainly Tim and Dave, thanks for bringing us to account so that we are factual because that's, that's what we want to do. And you make a mistake, it's human, but you, you own up to it and uh, learn and do better. And so I will work even harder to make sure that the future trivia questions are not so off the mark. And I think that's, that's the only mea culpa I've really had to do. And we're almost on a hundred episodes. I mean, there's a couple minor speaking this and that, but you know, that was a big one to me when I go, Oh crap, I can say crap on, on this, but that wasn't <laughs> exactly my, my first reaction. It was a, a little different, but anyway, so uh, sorry yeah. about that, Larry. I had to I had to steal some of the thunder right at the top to to make sure that we were. Um, pardon the pun, but that was a capital offense on my part. Oh, that's uh, you had to get that one in there for sure. You know, and they say you know you learn from your mistakes, and in this case, I think I learned from the mistakes of others as well. That's what my ex girlfriend said. Okay, yeah, that would explain that. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Well, you know, and here again, we appreciate the fact that the listeners were on top of it. I mean, and they did so in a manner that's uh, very pleasing, constructive criticism in this case, both constructive 
and uh, critical because it was necessary. It wasn't overly, when you think of criticism, you attach negativity to it. And that really wasn't the case here. It was just a case of assisting us in making sure that we provide the correct information because that's the goal of this podcast is to give you information, not misinformation, because information is so critical to this. But I find the timing of all this very interesting as well, because we all know that in the world of numismatics, there are mistakes made, errors are made, and the recent discovery at NGC concerning the uh, double-dyed dollar mule, or uh, the dyed, uh, here, see, I've got that D thing in my head, the uh, mule that was discovered with the Sacagawea dollar on the obverse and then the presidential dollar on the reverse, you know, somebody made a mistake on that, and there are you know, lots of, there's a branch of this uh, hobby that just deals totally with mistakes that were made. So mistakes get made in this. Ours becomes just something that, you know, gets lost into cyberspace. Others become something that gets encapsulated and uh, shown off and sold at high value. So if you're going to make mistakes, Jeff, make high value ones. Well, that's kind of like the Del Monte sticker on the $20 note. But let's be honest with that Del Monte note and with the mule on this presidential dollar and, you know, Sacagawea dollar. I don't think any seasoned expert or even some idiot like myself thinks that those were legitimate errors. Now, the the Del Monte thing, I think absolutely not. I mean, I, how would that get into the printing press and all this and that? I mean, I have bananas in uh, my kitchen just, you know, a little away from me. And, you know, it's, it's a nice thought that uh, I try to catch that 15 minute window before they go bad. Every, you know, it's like you get them and they're green and for five days they're green. And then 30 minutes later, they're black. I mean, how would you get one of those stickers into the printing press? Somebody's just gnawing on a banana while they're running the printing press. Come on. That seems far fetched. It's a little more believable that they would use the wrong dies on the dollars because they're the same size. But, you know, there's still a lot of, I think, skepticism, shall we say, when we see something like that, like the uh, Wisconsin State Quarter with the high leaf and low leaf error. I mean, it just seems like it's one of those that error is too good to be true. It has to have been aided. And we know that there were just a bevy of intentional errors that came out of the mint in the 70s, I believe it was, because, you know, these coins were lost in the oil pans and and when the presses were taken out and this and that but it's neat and it's it's cool you know those are the kind of errors we all love <laughs> larry and i certainly don't like the errors like the one i made last week so uh let's uh move forward with the rest of this week's show i can't let you do that i gotta have the final word that's just the way i am sometimes but it, what you just did is point out right there there are things known as intentional errors and then there are unintentional errors and it's obvious that ours was an unintentional error there you have it so, okay we can move yeah. on now i'm satisfied very good thank you thank you please mercy mercy rule <laughs> there's a lot going on as there's always numismatically i mean you could you know we could talk for hours let's delve into the uh, the case files as it were what was going on this week in numismatic history because uh, it was on january 29th I hate to be so U.S. centric, but this is kind of a big one. January 29th, 1793. Anybody 
who's paid attention to the Red Book with any sort of attention span recalls that 1793 is the date of, you know, the U.S. coinage. It was on January 29th that then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, 1793, that was uh, the beginning of the second term for George Washington, right? 1789? No, anyway, I think I'm, I'm off there. But anyway, another unintentional error. That was when Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson conveyed Henry Voigt's commission as the first chief coiner of the U.S. Mint. So there there has to be somebody in charge at the Mint. There has to be somebody to take the fall when they, when they make mistakes. And so the chief coiner is the top dog. That's not a title we have today. We have the director of the Mint. We used to have the chief engraver. That's a title that has gone by the wayside. As far as I know, there's no technical chief coiner. There's, it's more of a, hey, there's just people in charge of the various factories and, and whatnot. But you can't have a more auspicious or important anniversary when you're talking about American coinage. That's certainly up there, right? Without the coiner, you can't have the coins. In uh, 1793, there was the deem and half deem or dismi, D-I-S-M-E, if we're, people pronounce it different ways. If we're going with the alphabet ruse, as you started with, that's another one that works for it. So that's what was happening this week in numismatic history. Well, here's what I find interesting about that. Having read the uh, letter from David Rittenhouse in the National Archives that uh, he sent to George Washington, and it seems that there were a lot of individuals at that time that were on, on a boat back from France, and there were a lot of people who had to make some decisions. They couldn't make those decisions because they were in transit. Of course, this was before Wi-Fi. And uh, so they, they didn't have a playbook. They had to make it happen. They had to make it as they went along on this. And it's interesting to think back and just kind of close your eyes and think about how the times were different and how they were trying to make it right. And, you know, any misstep could be the end of it. And it's just a lot of pressure to get the job done right. And having a chief coiner taking the responsibility there is like, okay, that's on me. Here we go. I think that's a significant, especially the time of year and uh, 1793, very significant times as far as what led from that point on. That's actually the beginning in my mind. Absolutely. So, you know, now I think it's time to look back at coin world history. We always love doing this, looking to see what was in the news this time of the year at some point in the past to or recent past. And in this case, we're going back just five years to 2016. Why? Because that year was special for Joe Conti's story. You'll hear all about that in just a few moments. But what was the big deal on the January 25th, 2016 issue? Well, it's curious how five years later, there's lots of big coins in the news because big coins were in the news that week. You had the 1894 S dime, the finest known, that's the Barber dime. This branch mint proof sold for just shy of $2 million. We're talking $2,500 under that price point. And I can imagine in today's market, it would probably get over that mark pretty easily. That's my speculation. If you think I'm wrong, let us know. Call me out. Come at me. Whatever. You know, the market's hot. As we're talking today, last night we had the Brasher doubloon sell for $9.36 million. So, and it was funny, I think it was Greg Rowan who said on Facebook that the person who bought this, these doubloons, all the Brasher stuff, the, the doubloons and other pieces that were in this auction, $11 million 
plus total. These were the first coins that this buyer has ever bought. So that's new money into the market. That's amazing. People are looking for places to throw their investments. That's curious that, you know, big stuff is in the news today. It was certainly in the news five years ago. The other big story on the front page, that issue was the third sale of the Pogue collection coming up. As this issue was published, that sale had not yet happened. So you had one barn burner of a a coin that had just sold, and then you had a big sale coming up. And the big piece in that was this absolutely beautiful 1793 flowing hair reef scent. MS67, uh, you're talking red and brown highlights. I mean, it's just an absolute amazing piece. You can't get much more fun than that. I think it had an estimate around half a million dollars. So not a million dollar coin, but uh, at least in that market. But golly, you don't find them much nicer than that. And that uh, recalls something, you know, the Pogue collection. If you don't have it, it's not too late to find these in the market. But any collector, serious collector of U.S. numismatics should have a set of the auction catalogs for the Pogue sale. And I'm going to talk about auction catalogs in a bit when I'm talking about what we're reading, because what I'm reading, because um, I'm really wrestling with which ones to keep as I reorganize into my new place. But anyway, that's uh, for just a few minutes from now. What was uh, catching your eye in the issue, Larry? Well, I went into the letters page and I found a letter dealing with the coin and chronicle sets that were occurring back at this time. And uh, they did come out earlier and then the 2015 era, they started putting out a few more of them. Well, this particular reader was concerned why Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford weren't featured. And the letter goes, the U.S. Mint's 2016 product schedule shows that they are not issuing coin and chronicle sets for Presidents Nixon and Ford and are skipping right to Ronald Reagan. It's obvious someone at the Mint or higher up in the Treasury Department is being politically correct by not honoring Nixon, who did a lot of good for this country before he overstepped his bounds. Ford apparently is being punished because he pardoned Nixon, which was the right thing to do so the country could move forward. Shame on the Mint. And that was from Patrick Cleaver, of all places, from St. Louis, Missouri. So that right there went, huh, okay. But, you know, after looking at the letter and wondering, I mean, the Coin and Chronicle set was never intended to honor every president. Nope. There were quite a few of them that were issued right before this latest issue, but it was never intended to cover every president. So I don't think there was really any shenanigans going on as far as going, let's do this guy, not this guy, that type of thing. So it's just one of those things. Of course, obviously, the reader and uh, writer couldn't know this, but with the presidential coins, uh, Mr. Nixon and Mr. Ford are uh, very much represented. So there was no type of uh, activity there to think about that. We had had one other letter about uh, someone who uh, is advanced in their age, but still continuing to search their roles and, and uh, listed off all the things that they've found and all the things they've accumulated here. Quite the collection, quite you know, well diverse on that from uh, Eugene Steinberg out of Carroll Stream, Illinois, but letter just a little bit too long to read here. So I just kind of looked at those and go, this is just an indication of you know paying attention to what's going on with new products and also paying attention to how you can grow your coins 
by uh, finding different ways to to look for them there. So as a reasonably uh, newbie here, it just kind of interests me to see what everybody else's experiences really are. So that just kind of brought it out to mind to me in this particular issue. And and the it's become the point now where the letters to the editor becomes the first thing I read even five years later. So this is a good reminder of a couple things, though. First off, if you want to read that back issue, there's a, a easy way for you to do that. You just have to be a subscriber to CoinWorld. CoinWorld.com, you can get a digital subscription, or you can get the print one mailed, too, as part of it. But gosh, you have you have access to almost seven or eight years, I think. I don't remember the exact number, so don't uh, call me out on that, but it's uh, many years of back issues. You could spend hours scrolling to your heart's content, looking at some of the things that were in the news. So, you know, shameless plug time. Uh, we always remind you to subscribe to the podcast, but hey, why don't you subscribe to the hard copy or digital or both? And that'll allow you to see what we're talking about. Certainly when, you know, something five years ago, it is accessible in there, easy peasy to, to find. It's also interesting to know, you know, the Coin and Chronicle sets, Nixon is not beloved in general, like, say, President Reagan is or President John F. Kennedy is. So and nor is Gerald Ford. So, you know, the Mint is there to make money, both literally and figuratively. And I can't imagine there would have been much demand for something like that compared to some of these more popular figures. They certainly had their dollar coin. So they got their due as they were supposed to legislatively. And, uh, you know, sometimes the Mint can expand that and make products to sell the collectors that they think they'll buy. But, you know, the flip side is if if the Mint had made them and then they didn't sell well, wouldn't people be upset that the Mint wasted money on them? So you never know. You're never going to make everyone happy unless you are chocolate or ice cream or chocolate ice go. cream. But- good, good for you to bring that in there now <laughs> as I'm contemplating what the next activity is. But I, I kind of liken it a little bit to baseball cards. I know that, uh, you know, collectors get into baseball cards, but a Mickey Mantle card, which recently sold for such a high amount, would certainly do better than, let's say, a, uh, you know, a Bobby Doerr going back in the era or just some of the guys who were maybe utility players. They were important, uh, you know, but uh, somebody like Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, you know, Whitey Ford. Hank Aaron. Passed away last year. Hank Aaron, who passed away just today as we're recording this and, uh, so you can see that there are some that's more, you know, more valuable than others. And then that same thing holds true for presidents of the United States. So that's just what I think about there that, you know, you think of popularity, you can ask people on the street to name the presidents in order and they probably can't do it. So you just think about the value of the name. I mean, name recognition, some movie stars more popular than others. Some, uh, you know, a headline reads about a lesser movie star. You don't read it. If it's about a famous movie star, you're going to read it. So it's just one of them things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we've explored the history lesson that CoinWorld provides from five years ago. I don't know. You know, we usually do something with trivia right here, but I think I'm kind of still sore about my mistake. What, what do you think, Larry? Well, I think it's time for penance. I think maybe your your penalty would be that you don't ask a trivia question this week, but that does not undo the fact that you did ask one last week. And so consequently, I owe you an answer to that one. And so, you know, I'm going to go ahead without making you ask the question again. I think because I remember laughing 
when I read it, but I think the answer that you were looking for was Tatoon, wasn't it? Wasn't that what you were after? What the shilling was called before it was the shilling? Wasn't that what it was called? Am I right? Am I wrong? We're going to get more letters. What's going to happen here? You are partially correct. It depends on how you're spelling it because it's Testoon is how it's spelled. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's Testoon. Okay. Testoon. Yep. Right. So, or testing. I, I just pronounced it to get letters. That's what I was. No, I'm yes. kidding. You know, so, yeah, it's just I, I, I was going off of memory, and my memory's not exactly what it would be. What is today, anyway? But anyway, so okay, with that closes the business right there. Given you know the mispronunciation, I would have not gotten it correct on Jeopardy. But uh, so we're just going to kind of put this on hiatus right now. My, so my, let's just instead the, of instead of thinking about trivial matters i'm going to think about making sure that my next question is spot on i won't uh <laughs> drop the ball like like i did with the last one so oh and the well. best way to do that is to read best way to do it is to read and study so what are you reading you'd mentioned auction catalogs yeah so we're talking about you know with pogue sale and all these big sales that are going on now and just one of the struggles as i you know because i moved back to st louis i still have the fixed space for my numismatic library but there were some things that i found that i had not actually had access to in the library so i still have two boxes that are partially full of things that should go up into the library, but I don't have room for them. And one of the things I'm trying to decide is which auction catalogs to keep and which I don't need anymore. And, you know, for a bibliophile like myself, that's very difficult. But then I think back to, well, how often have I actually referred to some of these? How many of these are available online in a digital format? And it makes me wonder, but I can, I can tell you that like the Pogue, catalogs, those ain't going anywhere. I have a complete set of the John J. Ford collection catalogs from Stax uh, in like 2004 to seven or whatever. Those aren't going anywhere. Those are magnificent resources. Uh, Some of the stuff you won't see hardly anywhere else, certainly not in the aggregate like that. So I have the Dan Holmes collection of of, uh, large sense, and that's four catalogs. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a world coin guy, but I'm going to keep those because that's the definitive work, if you will, of one of the most famous collections. Uh, that really leads to what I want to say is, is sort of a, um, a buy recommendation, if you will. If you come across these, if you are interested in ancient coins, there is nothing better than the, I think it's five catalogs of the um, the Hunt Brothers collection that Sotheby's sold around 88, 89, 1990. And I bought a set four or five years ago, and I want to say it was like $250. I mean, I was, you know, it took some, uh, okay, fine, I'm going to pull the trigger and do this. But my goodness, there's nothing better. Classical ancient numismatics, some of the stuff that, you know, I'll, it's, it's some of the stuff has come up to the market in the last five years or so. And I'll see a reference to the catalog and I go, yep. Okay. And I go pull it out and I read, you know, the lavishly illustrated great stories. That's a must have for somebody. If like you're thinking about getting into ancient coins and you, you want to have the best work about them from an auction standpoint, that's the one to get. 
what a story as well. The Hunt brothers and, you know, their silver manipulation and they had to sell all their coins to pay their debts. And I mean, it's, it's just a fascinating story. Like I'm sure that TV show, American Greed, maybe they've featured the Hunt brothers on there, but if they haven't, they should, <laughs> because that's such a famous story in numismatics. And again, the coins in that collection The ancient coins are just phenomenal. Do yourself a favor. If you have no knowledge of ancient coins, but you have a chance to look at those catalogs, you will quickly become enraptured with the coins and the stories that they convey. So that's the little dive into my bookshelf this week. So then the question comes to mind, as you mentioned, the fact that some of those that you own now in physical form may actually be available digitally. And I just have to wonder, can you look into your crystal ball and do we anticipate a day when those auction catalogs are only going to be available digitally? Will the companies continue to produce the hard copies? What do you think is going to happen with this? I know that the cost for creating printed products is going up, not down. The cost for mailing printed products is going up, not down. You know, we at a publication, Coin World, we see that all the time, you know, because that's just the reality of the paper market, the ink, all those factors, the shipping to move the objects, big paper rolls to the presses, the press operations themselves, all of these things are costing more and more and more. So there definitely is a, uh, we've seen over the last 11 months, 10 months, you know, this greater emphasis on connecting digitally, that's not going away for sure. But I would hope that the market creates a space for the printed product, especially in an auction catalog format. Certainly, you know, not to diss somebody's random collection, but when you do the Pogue collection, that absolutely has to be in a catalog. That's just, that's part of it. When you have If I could sell what I own as far as numismatically, and I can't, but if I could sell everything I own and buy a thousand nice examples with that money and put that in an auction and do an auction of that, that would still not be worth having a printed catalog in the sense of this is something that people are going to look on for years to come. Now, from a sales and marketing standpoint, I find it, and from a writing standpoint, it's absolutely easier to flip through a catalog real quick to look for something that, oh yeah, I I haven't written about this before, or it looks like it has an interesting story. Let me see, you know, what did the cataloger say about it? Or, wow, that's a really neat design. What can I do? Are there references to books that talk about this coin that I can then go look up and find out the backstory? That is so much easier so much easier to do in a printed format. And I think from a selling format, buyers like to see those catalogs in printed form. Many of them, there's many folks. I mean, I have a friend who's in a business like ours and, you know, they have people that he's like, well, go to our website. They don't even hardly have computers. They have to get their kids or grandkids to help them. And, you know, eventually that will age out. But they're still very much, you know, I'm, I'm an ink-stained wretch. I'm very much an on-dead-tree guy. So, you know, you're absolutely going to have, it's a must to have catalogs for something like the Pogue Collection, 
there will be a day when uh, the realities, the vicissitudes of publication being such as they are, and also, my gosh, to have a printed publication, the kind of lead time you need to have. Now, it's, it seems that you know auction houses are scrambling to get their consignments in and close the deadline out and have things cataloged and, and ready to go in time. So if you cut out that printing and mailing time from the timeline, if you can pull that out, that does help them on that end. So it will move that direction begrudgingly, perhaps, in some cases, in some cases, you know, I mean, hey, if, if somebody could develop a slick app where I could just flip through you know, lot, 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 nope, 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 and see it like turning a page, boom, then sign me up. And maybe there's something like that out. I'm not bidding using an app. I'm not bidding on some of these auctions. Like, I'm just a poor boy born to... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't know. Like <laughs> so why is it I get this visual of swipe left and swipe right? But that's, you know, that's just on me right now. Well, there. you know, I, I, will yeah. say, I will say, you know, getting out of small town Ohio... Um, Bumble seems to be uh, lighting up for me here in St. Louis. <laughs> All right. That's another subject for another time. Thank you very much. Right so, now, we've got, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. You're going to make a nice segue to our interview with Joe Conti. And uh, so I'll let you do that. Okay. Well, in terms of a disclaimer, this uh, interview was pre-recorded, as was all of this stuff. When you stop and think about it, we are not live, so you cannot respond to us instantaneously. Oh, but we did have the opportunity. Yes. No. I'm. I'm. I'm definitely. I don't know which way I'm going right now, but just to let you know that I mean it's true. We uh, we do this stuff in advance, and uh, so that we have the possibility of editing it, but we're too lazy to do that. We didn't have to edit this because we had that great opportunity. We found some time, got some availability with a very busy Joe Conti, and he sat down with us to discuss uh, what it's like to be a dealer in training. Larry and I are delighted today to be joined by Joe Conti, who is a dealer in training in Iowa. Joe has a interesting and unique perspective on beginning as a dealer and starting from the collecting ranks. Thank you for being here today, Joe. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're delighted. So, you know, when I saw this story, I thought, you know, this is something that the Coin World podcast audience needs to hear. You are a, a part-time dealer. You're a dealer in training. How long have you been doing that? Uh, I started dealing or selling um, about four years ago, three and a half years ago, maybe. The collecting started a little bit before that. Okay. Obviously, there aren't really shows right now. Maybe you're going to set up at the March show that Chris is doing in Iowa. Is that? Are you setting up at shows when they are held? Do you do mostly online? Where do you have your stuff for sale? I'm an online presence. I do go to a show every once in a while, and I just look around and see what people have to offer, see what the prices are like. I can work behind the counter with the coin store that is in this town. The dealer has been very helpful to me, and currently I have an office in his store. And it's a really good start, and I'm learning a lot from that experience. I think it's important that you uh, um, you mention that because the idea is that we draw strength from each other in this hobby, it seems like. And so for you to have a good rapport with someone who could be construed as your competition but uh, you know, has a uh, willingness to work with you on that, that's got to be helpful. Yes, absolutely. Um, integrity is everything. 
And um, over the four years, I've proven myself as, you know, being a legitimate person that's not out to take advantage of anyone. We work in a partnership relationship. I help post some of his stuff online and I can increase his business. And at the same time, I can increase my knowledge and my ability to sell more later on down the road and maybe become a freestanding dealer myself. How did you develop this relationship with this particular dealer? I've known him about six years. Uh, I would go in and collect some uh, ancient coins and bought some, sold some, got some Indian head sense. And then about five years ago, something clicked for me. I had been working as a college professor up until 2011 when my disability really became serious. I was miserable. I was crushed because teaching psychology at the community college was a a pure joy for me. And I went through years of depression and and misery and played a lot of online poker, just, you know, self-pity and despair. And then about five years ago, I I thought, you know, I can at least work on my health and start walking. And so I walked and I noticed a lot of tin cans on the street. And cans on the street are worth five cents a piece in Iowa. So I would take a bag on my walks and I noticed I'd get like three or four dollars worth of cans collected. And then I went to the coin store and used that three or four dollars to buy raw so-called junk silver, barber dimes, barber quarters and barber halves. He saw me come in like two or three times a week and I would always, you know, keep, you know, getting more barbers. And the relationship just developed as I worked with him more and more. And uh, he realized he can trust me and he trusts me to have some some of his coins to sell for him online. And uh, it's been growing from there. That was uh, the thing that was interesting to me. I mean, you started on this health journey, and I certainly have seen it more in the, the last year or so. But you took your exercise and turned it into a profitable thing, like you say, picking up the aluminum cans. But I mean, this was something you built over time. I mean, you built this little nest egg. You would get the silver and put it in a little box. And over time, you built up quite a collection, quite a value of junk silver, as it were, right? Well, exactly. Uh, I started out just collecting the barbers. I would get rolls of barbers. The reason I started stacking silver was because I couldn't save money in the form of cash because that would be spent at the end of the month. And so I thought, well, if I buy it as silver, then I'll be less likely to turn it in for cash and spend it. Well, I did the same with my can money and it just added more and more coins to those rolls. And I always cherry picked. I always found the best quality barbers and later Mercury Dimes and Standing Liberty Quarters, Walking Liberty Halves. And in November of 20, November, yeah, Thanksgiving, right around that period in 2016, I had an insight. I realized I can sell a roll of Barber Dimes for about 90 or $100 and they cost me 60 And I did that. I looked on eBay. I looked on Google at the results and I saw Atmex was selling Barber Dimes for $100 a roll for good or better. So I'd sell good or betters for 90 and average circulations for 70. And I was just a coin delivery guy for a while. So I'd take my $60 investment in a $5 roll of good or better Barber Dimes and then use all of that money that I got 
when I met the person in the safe place and he paid me, I would use all that money to buy more Barber dimes. So I'd go from 50 up to 75 after that one sale. And I did that for about a year. I was uh, sort of a coin delivery uh, person in Iowa. We would meet in different places. I was on let go. I actually did set up for a coin show once at the, the antique fair in Des Moines. This was obviously something that you had to build over time, and you were collecting cans just about every every other day or every day, right? Oh, I mean, this every, was- every day, every day. I started walking, you know, started it slow, maybe uh, two or three miles a day. I couldn't bear to see the cans on the side of the road because that's money. And during that process, it really taught me the value of a dollar because when you're collecting cans... You get one can on a block and then maybe three cans on the next block. Over the course of an hour, you might get 20 cans and that's one hour and it's hard work. Then you have to rinse out the cans, stack them up and take them to a store to get the money back. And I did that day after day after day for about um, one and a half years, maybe two. Just continuing to build up my selection, my inventory of 90% silver that I cherry picked and I got the best quality of. I'm somebody that's been on a, a weight loss journey in the last year or two myself. Where you started on that journey and how that walking helped you really change your outlook on health? Something happened about five years ago, four or five years ago. I started coming out of my despair and I realized, you know, I have a pretty decent life and I don't have any reason to want to die young. When I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to look back and say, you could have done this and this and this, you know, I want to be able to counter those negative thoughts when I'm, you know, ready to go and say, no, I I did my best. I I worked my hardest and I've just been working with it. I've lost 95 pounds now in uh, three years of heavy work, two years collecting cans, one year of um, just walking. But it's really a matter of, do I want to live or do I want to die? And at that point, life was meaningful for me. I had gotten over my grieving of my loss as a, of a profession in uh, mental health and uh, as a college professor. I mean, I got over that grieving and I realized I want to live. So I chose to live and I walked and I, I picked up cans, you know, to do my, my service and clean the streets and learn the value of the dollar at the same time. Oftentimes when you have the situation where um, something comes in your life that's catastrophic, like a job loss or a loss of a a loved one or something like that, I mean, I think you understand as a professional in the mental health field that, you know, that can have a lasting impact. And all too often we don't think about those who are supposed to be knowledgeable that they're human too, and they suffer through these types of things. And they sometimes need to learn the lessons from what they teach for themselves. It sounds like that that's kind of what uh, the eureka moment you had on that was to understand that you have value. And uh, despite what the circumstances may have been, I, I applaud you for that because that's a very difficult decision. And sometimes you find yourself in a position where it takes a while to get to that decision. Yeah. It's enlightening to hear that, you know, once you do something, you know, there's nothing done if you don't do anything. Absolutely. The idea is that you come through and I, I, I applaud your results. I think that's fantastic for you and congratulate you on that. Thank you. Just just the idea that you have a better outlook on life now. I mean, sometimes we get mired in because somebody else may have a view of us 
that's a little different. And, you know, it's just like in the world of, of coin collecting, that's why I've, I've said this countless times to Jeff, and I'm not going to uh, proselytize, but the idea is that even if you collect large cents, you don't look down upon somebody who collects Confederate money. It's just the idea that this numismatic community can be a welcoming place. And I think you might have found that with your dealer. Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing I read in, in one of the groups, I guess it was the RVM, Roundtable Verified Member Group. Somebody said lesson number one when, when you start dealing is don't look at the table of the guy next to you. You have what you have and you should be content with that and work with what you have. Don't be envious of what the person next to you has and don't look down on what the other person to your other side has. And that to me, you know, when you talk about that and thinking about setting up at a coin show itself, I would think you would face that in greater ideas if the fact that a lot of yours is handled through the internet, through social media, because there is a vast world out there, uh, the Ebays and all these other monumental sites that uh, a smaller person, a dealer in training would have a difficult hill to climb. And so you would have to have a sense of positive in order to compete in that world. Well, yeah. And the positive thing about um, being a smaller dealer and dealer in training is that there are collectors that are starting out. There are collectors that want to have good quality silver that, you know, is at least worth the melt value plus maybe a premium for being, you know, good quality coins. There are collectors that like damaged seated Liberty coinage because they can get them cheap. There's a market for collectors that like coins that have, you know, not had the best life, maybe a clean large scent or something with corrosion because they can afford it. And it actually, I respect that because it means that they respect the, uh, the history of that piece of currency and they see the life of the coin. Whereas a really high end dealer who would like a, a mint state with luster, red, large scent, I don't think that a respectable dealer would look down on somebody who loves a corroded 1794 large scent because they love the history. I think that any numismatist would respect just the love of the hobby. And there are a lot of people that, that collect low-end coins because that's what their budget allows. And it adds up. That's what happened for me. It just started adding up. And you know, then I was able to uh, work with Jerry and buy for less than wholesale and you know, give people a good deal and, and make a little bit more inventory for myself. So can you talk about, you would put your silver into like a, a its own little box. How big was that box and how long did it take to fill that up? Before I started collecting cans, I maybe the box had two kilograms of silver in it. And then when I started collecting cans, I didn't really care for bullion so much and I just, I suppose I got two rolls of each denomination and each denomination of each series of 90% silver, two rolls of each. And that was enough for me to get started. If I sold a roll of Standing Liberty Quarters for 160, I'd go back and buy 50 Standing Liberty Quarters for 160 and get 10 more. So that's sort of the critical yeah, yeah, mass yeah. to get started. Yeah, it's a snowball effect. Yep, Absolutely. Let's take it to the listener to the pre-pandemic. You know, I've seen you active on Facebook groups and all that. Even before the pandemic, you were pretty active. How has your business changed, suffered, improved? I mean, you talk about that because, you know, everybody's used to buying online now. And that's sort of, for many places, the only outlet. 
has that made it easier, harder? Is it a wash? What about those changes? Well, not to diminish the effect of the pandemic on uh, the people who are going through it, including myself. A lot of people have suffered a lot. People have suffered losses. People have suffered losses of businesses. But several years ago, I decided to move my business online because I didn't feel safe walking around with 200 bucks worth of silver coins in my pocket to meet somebody that might be able to follow me home. Yeah. Uh, So I was already online. And what the pandemic did for me was it allowed me to increase my online presence. I created or was a, a guiding influence behind the creation of the Online Coin Club, which is the first ANA member club that meets twice a week without walls through Zoom meetings. And um, we have everything that a regular coin club offers. So during the pandemic, when silver crashed and the premiums were so high and silver became so volatile, I switched the sales to coins that I would sell on commission for the coin store in my town. And I put a lot of energy into the online coin club. I think I wanted to work in about you know, work on getting my name out there and getting known in the coin community. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's had a really positive impact on me. And I think that online coins is the new normal. People are seeing people leave coin shows, coin clubs. Well, it's because the newer generations are wanting to be online. So I think the pandemic is going to have a good impact on the coin business in general. So then there's a, uh, you know, you've got to adjust. You can't necessarily adjust inventory all the time, but you've got to adjust. you got to fish with the pond where the fish are is what it comes down to. There's a certain amount of comfort level that people have with online transactions now. And, you know, to your point, it seems to be a little safer in my mind. Is that the case? Is it a, a more secure transaction for you? You don't feel like you're, you're threatened by the possibility of some harm being brought to you by doing online and uh, social media business. Correct. Anytime that I'd be walking around with somebody's order, driving to a pickup site, there's the possibility that the person would have a gun and would just, you know, want all my coins and, you know, leave me, you know, losing money instead of making a little bit. Online, I have the security of, as a seller, I have the security of not having that risk. There's another risk for online business, and that is that new collectors and seasoned collectors alike find it intimidating to purchase online from a relative stranger. And the coin collecting community on Facebook is a very close-knit community, and I believe by working on the online coin club and doing networking, doing that, I help make myself become someone that people trust and aren't as hesitant to buy from because they know that I'm not going to throw it all away so that I can scam them out of $500 worth of coins. So then how do you deal with, uh, as you develop this reputation, the quality of the product? I think one of the biggest fears is that somebody feels there's going to be bait and switch involved. Once you get these customers, you probably don't have any difficult time. Once you get a successful transaction, you probably don't have any difficult time keeping that business. I would think that uh, the repeat business is really what you're after here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have a number of repeat customers and I have a number of familiar faces. Um, I admin um, in a couple of coin groups and people see my presence there. I post educational posts and they're aware of me and they feel that I'm a safe person to interact with. I've never had a refund yet, but my policy is if somebody is not satisfied with something that 
I will take care of it. I'll make them whole. And that's the type of reputation that I want to go before me. And the people know they're safe working with me. That's definitely it. Because when we're talking a little bit about the psychology of of the matter is that the customer has to feel secure in doing this or they're going to, you know, not necessarily pull the trigger on a purchase or wait till the shows are, are coming back so they can touch the coin, that type of thing. But from your background and understanding some of the uh, some of the things that you did when you were an instructor, mm-hmm. how difficult is it to because you can't pigeonhole. The reason why I'm, I'm using this question, Joe, is we recently had an article from 40 years ago that a psychologist looked at collectors and, and more or less demeaned anybody who was a collector. And I disagree with that. I don't think anybody who's a collector it should be demeaned. I think we're all individuals and we're all unique. How do you handle that? Not knowing these individuals, not knowing who you're dealing with, how do you as a dealer handle the difficult task of satisfying them. Well, first, as to demeaning people that collect coins, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, for something to be problematic psychologically, it has to cause clinically significant distress or impairment. It means that if somebody's buying coins and then they're kicking themselves for buying it, that's distress. And if it's clinically significant, bad enough for them to go to a doctor, oh, I have a problem buying coins, then that person should have help. If it's causing impairment, like they're not able to function in the rest of their life, they call in to work because they want to spend, go online and and buy all the coins. If they're impaired or clinically significantly distressed by their collecting, well, that's a problem. But if it's something positive in their life that increases their socialization, increases our uh, interaction with other people, our learning of history, our understanding of our roots as a nation and our place in the world through world currency and, and the history of coins in general. There's no problem with, with coin collecting or collecting anything unless it causes that in clinically significant distress or impairment. Uh, now, I forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> what I was- no, that, that's fine, because what you've given me right there is what I, I truly believe. And now you've clinically backed that up with that statement here, because, you know, but my question, the second part actually has to deal with you don't know who you're, who this person who contacts you, you have no idea maybe who this person uh-huh. is or what their right. intent might be. So, you know, you have to put your own safeguards into this, I would think. But that's the case it is with any kind of transaction. Well, there are a couple of safeguards that I take. If I'm purchasing online, I buy from people that are vetted. And there are a number of vetting organizations on Facebook and in the coin community, the online coin community at large. There's something called Roundtable. Well, an organization called Roundtable Trading was the first coin vetting organization out there. Rob Oberth started it, and he created a group called Coin Dealers Helping Coin Dealers. And the coin dealers are very vetted in that group. So anybody knows that anyone, you can send them the merchandise before they pay you, and you know that you're going to get paid for that merchandise. That's the level of trust there. There's a lower level, and the same level of trust, but uh, something for people that are not as large, not as a big a business, and called Roundtable Verified Members. And I was fortunate enough to get the RVM number one because I was the first person to click I'm in <laughs> when they're giving out Roundtable numbers. So I'm RVM one. That says a lot for my credibility. 
and that eases people's minds and gives people references. There's also collectors for collectors in a group called Hat Creek Coin and Currency. That gives credibility. If I'm going to buy something online, if the person is a roundtable authorized dealer or a roundtable verified member, I feel safe. I feel comfortable. I don't feel there's any risk. If I'm buying from someone new, I will ask for his references. And I did this just Thanksgiving. It was actually for my personal collection. I I type collect because I, I need to have one of each coin so that I don't have to buy every new coin that comes my way. I already have, you know, a seated Liberty half dollar, so I don't have to buy another one. But he had a coin that would fit into my type collection well. I traded it, but I had to look him up because I hadn't heard of him before. And CoinCube Trading is another organization that vets their members. And he's a member of CoinCube Trading. And I talked to Greg Hannigan about the gentleman and he said, oh, he's 110% reliable. So rest assured, I bought from him. The other safeguard that people have is using PayPal goods and services. People have to buy using goods and services, which charges the seller 3%. If they use that, then they have recourse to get their money back if they bought from a scammer. The only way that I would buy from somebody that I am unsure of is through PayPal goods and services and or vetting them by talking to people that I know that are high up and well-known in the coin community. Definitely have to protect yourself because it is an investment and uh, that type of thing. You mentioned about typesets. So what particular coins uh, got you to move to become a collector as much as a dealer? Well, I'm visiting my nephew today and I brought my coin book because I'm hoping that maybe we'll have time to, uh, to go through it. And my type collection The flowing hair coinage is the coinage that George Washington and the founding fathers spent. Drape bust coinage is the coinage that was spent before the British invasion of 1812. Capped bust coinage, that's the coinage that was going through commerce before the crash of 37 when the hard times hit. Seated Liberty coinage was the coinage that was in people's pockets when the preludes to the Civil War was rumbling. And there's a tangible proof there. This coin was in someone's pocket who might have been an abolitionist or might have used it to buy a slave. Then in 1864, again, God We Trust was put on currency for the first time, and the Reconstruction period happened shortly after that. It's beautiful to be able to hold some of that in your hands, a seated liberty dollar from 1873. This is what America was spending back during the period of Reconstruction. Then barber coinage, that was the coinage that was the workhorse money of the Industrial Revolution. And having that coin is to see this is what made America be a great industrial nation. And then World War I coinage. After World War I, new series were struck with beautiful artwork. Peace dollar, one of the most beautiful silver dollars ever issued, in my opinion. And the Walking Liberty half dollar, which was at the tail end of the First World War. And then it tells the story of World War II, when silver was put into nickels and and steel cents were made out of steel. And then the post-war era, where everything is presidential coins. It's really a type album is a history book, but it's all relics of history. Instead of pictures, you can actually hold those coins that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln may have touched. As the armchair clairvoyant that I am, I would say you're interested in history 
did coins further an interest or did they spark an interest in history? I was always interested in history, which is why type collecting drew me in so much. I look at a 1838 bust quarter, small size, and I think this would have bought a meal for a family of four at a classy restaurant. I look at a silver dollar from 1873. This would have gotten a week at a boarding house for a poor person, a $5 gold piece. I don't collect gold. That's out of my price range, but a $5 gold piece is a month's stay in a bed and breakfast. Some coins have interesting stories. Copper cents was not legal tender. And so some of them have counter stamps on them. So they're used in, in brothels. Some of them have counter stamps on them to advertise. We accept copper at this location. Come shop, shop with us. So it really uh, added to my enjoyment of history and my enjoyment of history also lit the fire of wanting to type collect. That's very interesting too, because there are a lot of reasons why folks get involved in this, whether that's a family connection to their heritage or whether they're just interested in that. But historically, I made the comment just last week to uh, an individual selling that uh, you can write a history book just on coins. And, you know, you detailed that in, in great detail as well. So we can see here that no matter what your interest might be, there's going to be something out there if you look for it. Absolutely. And, you know, that it's a whole big world and it's more and more coming every day. But, you know, still, they're not making the uh, flowing hairs anymore. So, no. you know, you got to get it now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Awesome. So I loved your waxing rhapsodic or poetic about the connection between coins and history. And I think I want to let that stand maybe as the last word, unless you have any closing thoughts to add. Well, the only closing thoughts I have to add is when I started collecting, I was dealing with just 90% junk coinage. I didn't type collect because it was so daunting. And it made me depressed to think if I buy this coin, it'll remind me of the coin that I had when I was a kid that I sold. But what I'd want anyone to go away with is you can do it. You can make good things happen and have a rewarding hobby in the field of numismatics. And it's a time-honored tradition. Awesome. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time today with us. This is, uh, you know, it's been instructive and inspirational. And I think um, the hobby is for everybody. I've been saying it since episode one and would love to hear that from somebody who's living it every day. So can't say enough thanks. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeff. And thank you, Larry, as well. So that was our interview with Joe Conti the dealer in training in Iowa. We loved hearing his perspectives, his story. You know, every collector, every superhero has an origin story, right? Well, every collector has an origin story. And that's what uh, we love sharing those. We want to hear yours. And uh, we ask for you to subscribe, contact us, reach out, chastise me when I get something wrong. Be gentle with Larry, though. He, you know, I should know better. Uh, give him a little pass. But anyway, yeah, we, we uh, thank you for hanging in with us for this little uh, hour or whatever it turns out to be of uh, numismatic fun, hopefully, education, hijinks, and, uh, and bad puns. Plenty of those. So until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. 
Would you like to sponsor the Coin World podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at b h e r t e l at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World podcast.